0: We were talking this morning about Jesus being the final revelation of, of God in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, and we were talking about prophecies and prophets and all those kind of things, and I had found an article, I guess it's been a couple of weeks ago now, I thought I had a date on here, oh, January 1st, so that's been a few weeks ago, out of the uh, San Francisco Chronicle uh, out in San Francisco uh, which you kind of expect something like this to come from there I guess but I was talking about a movie that's been released now, I haven't seen the movie but maybe you have it's called 2012 you've seen that movie or you know what you've seen it advertised I've seen it advertised it's based on some Mayan prophecies of the Mayans and basically it says that the world is going to come to an end in 2012 and that uh, it's on its way it's moving toward that so uh because these Mayans had this insight. They understand when it's happening. It's going to happen in 2012. Well, uh, the headline here says, Biblical Scholars uh, Disputes That. A biblical scholar refutes that. I'm not, I don't know this biblical scholar named Harold Camping uh, from California. Do you know Harold Camping? Okay. Well, Harold Camping said that's the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard, that the world is not going to end in 2012. It's going to end on... Uh, I lost my day, on May the 21st, 2011. So, uh, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous to like think these Mayans have it. And he's done that by a real clear uh, mental gymnastics. Uh, Camping believes that every word of the Bible was dictated by God. Now, that's one of the... He's one of the few people I've ever heard that said they believed in the dictation theory. Or there are a few, but in the dictation theory of inspiration. But he believes every word is dictated, and then that because of that... Every word and every number carries a spiritual significance. And we just talked to the group of folks about not spiritualizing the text. He does it well. And he noticed that particular numbers appear in the Bible at the same time particular themes are discussed. For instance, he says the number five is the number that equals atonement. I don't know where he gets. I'm sure he would explain this in depth. but he, Well, he does say he patiently explained how he reached his conclusion, but he doesn't cover it here. Number five equals atonement. 10 is the number for completeness. I'd always heard it was 7 and 12 that were numbers of completeness, but with him it's 10 is the number of completeness. And 17 means heaven. So, if you uh, realize, according to him, that Christ hung on the cross on April the 1st, 33 A.D. Uh, Now you go to April the 1st of 2011, and that's 1,978 years. He multiplied... 1,978 by 365.2422 days, the number of days in each solar year, not to be confused with the calendar year. Next, he noted that April 1 to May 21 encompasses 51 days. Add 51 to the sum of the previous multiplication total, and that equals 722,500. Camping realized that if you take 5 times 10 times 17 in one bracket, and five times ten times seventeen in another bracket, and then you multiply those by each other. It's an algebraic formula here. I remember that from algebra one. I could have done this one. It comes uh, after algebra one. I was lost, but it comes to seven hundred and twenty-two thousand five hundred. So, or put, to put in the words, atonement time completeness time heaven squared. Five times, ten times, times seventeen is telling you a story, Camping said. It's a story from the time Christ made payment for your sins until you're completely saved. I tell you, why? I tell you. I just just about fell out of my chair when I realized that, Camping said. I would have fallen out of my chair, too. Um, It seems that uh, at least one other scholar, James Kruger, Who's author of Secrets of the Apocalypse revealed uh, has been studying this for forty years and is familiar with Camping's work, and he says uh, he abl- he believes the second coming, the end of the world is coming soon. He disputes Camping's method, and he uses the only thing that I have any real assurance in, and that is the Scripture, where he quoted Matthew twenty four thirty six of the de- of that day and hour no one knows no man knows no not angels of heaven but only my Father. Uh, but this is an example of, of just, you know, really kind of quirky uh, uh, f- uh, prophecy and quirky biblical interpretation. And you, you can take numbers all day and give meaning to them and try to come out with certain things, and, and it just doesn't work because the Bible is not a code book. The Bible is not a book that was given for us to try to find the city. Remember the Bible code a few years ago, the book, you know, that was written by the, I think, Washington Post uh, uh, writer? And everybody was running around saying, oh, well, this code, we've got to break the code. There is no code to break, folks. It's the revelation of God in, in words to us that we're to study, we're to understand, and we're to believe. Well, that's left over from this morning. I'm sorry I left it out. It would have fit a lot better. It would have made a lot better sense to you in that sermon this morning. But I just couldn't resist sharing that with you tonight. Aren't you glad? Besides, i got kind of a short sermon tonight, and that just took a little time up. Ma- Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Galatians chapter 4, verses 30, uh, 21 through 31. Now, as we enter into this passage tonight out of Galatians, I want you to understand something from the very beginning. By most accounts, by both most biblical scholars' accounts and New Testament scholars' accounts, this is the most difficult passage in Galatians to deal with. It's because it it presupposes not just a a cursory understanding of Old Testament history, but it presupposes a very deep understanding, a very comprehensive understanding of Old Testament uh, history. One of which people in Paul's day, especially these who were still struggling between Judaism and Christianity, would have understood uh, somewhat. But sadly today, most of us, even those of us who have been to seminary, And studied Old Testament don't necessarily always have the graphs to understand the the intricacies of the Old Testament like perhaps we should. So Paul is still trying to show the superiority of the gospel. Paul is bringing forth this argument tonight. He's used the argument of Abraham. He said Abraham was justified by faith alone. It wasn't by his works. It wasn't by circumcision. It wasn't by any of those things. Abraham was justified by faith alone. He believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And he made that very clear. He's talked about how these people are are being deceived and being turned back to the old law, being turned back to the old way, and and that that is an inferior thing, and that is a dangerous thing. And so they must persevere in the gospel. They must press forward in the gospel. Paul has made that clear. the last few times we looked at, we talked about what it meant to be a son of God, sonship in Christ. In verses 1 through 20, he talks about the adoption, that we've been adopted as, as children, we've been adopted in the family. We had no birthright to be a part of the family of God. We had no natural right to be a part of the family of God. But God has, by His grace, adopted us, brought us into His family. We couldn't make Him take us. There was no human reason for Him to take us but because of his grace and his grace alone he has adopted us and brought us into his family and Paul makes that clear in our understanding of sonship we are not natural sons and daughters we are adopted sons and daughters born again born anew but we are not we're not naturally a part of the, the family of God we are adopted as part of the family of God then he comes to this passage and he goes back to the Old Testament and he talks about Sarah and Hagar Uh, He talks about the sons of those two women. He talks about Mount Sinai, and he talks about Jerusalem. And he brings those things together to make parallels of the Old old Covenant and the New Covenant. What Paul is trying to show here is that there are two covenants. Now, there are a lot of people today who believe there is just one covenant. Covenant theology says that there's just one covenant. There's never been a change in covenant. It's, It's all one, that from the beginning all the way through till now there is one covenant. Well, there's a sense in which the covenants have always had the same purpose. They have always pointed to Christ. They've always sought a people and and brought a people to faith in in God to to follow him and be a part of his family. But the scriptures is very clear. Paul here, uh, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8 that we'll look at in a month or two, Uh, He talks about there's a a better covenant, there's a new covenant, there is a a different covenant from the old covenant, and this new covenant is superior. And Paul is wanting to show that same thing that the writer of Hebrews is going to show us when he quotes Jeremiah when we get to chapter 8 of Hebrews. But I want you to listen carefully to how Paul states this because it's very important that we see it and understand it. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. These women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. Notice there's two Jerusalems here now. The Jerusalem present on the earth and the Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear break forth and shout you who are not in labor for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband and you brethren like Isaac are children of promise but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so it is now also but what does the scripture say Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. That's out of Genesis chapter 21. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bo- of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, you can see why New Testament scholars say this is the most difficult passage to interpret because Paul is using this allegorical speaking. He doesn't Typically, do that. That's very unusual for Paul to break something down in an allegory and, and talk about the new covenant, the old covenant, to talk about the two covenants, to talk about the uh, uh, all these things in light of Sarah and Hagar, in light of of uh, Isaac and 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 Ishmael, and and all of these other. He and, and to talk about Mount Sinai being a mother and Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above being a mother. These are all strange talking for Paul, but he wants them to understand. He wants us to understand the superiority of what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be a part of this new covenant relationship. He starts out in verse 21 with a question. Because you remember the the Judaizers were trying to pull them back to the law, trying to pull them back to legalism. And he says, you who want to be under the law, tell me this. Do you not listen to the law? He says, you've heard the gospel. And you've heard about the grace of Jesus Christ. You've heard about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But listen to, the, listen to the law also. The law is a very strident. The law is a very demanding. The law is a very, a very confining thing. And the law basically says that if you do not obey the completeness of the law, if you do not obey it in every jot and tittle to every small point, then there's no hope for you. Listen to what the law says. The law says you have to be perfect in your own right if you want to be a part of this relationship this part of this family with God he says understand this is difficult the law puts puts commands on you and puts requirements on you that you cannot fulfill you cannot live up to there's no way you can and then he says you know Abraham had two sons one by a slave or a bondwoman, and, and one by the free woman we know that story Sarah had been promised Abraham had been promised by God that Sarah would bear a, a seed, and, and the seed from that one would fill the like the grains of the sand would fill the earth. And yet Sarah was getting older. And Abraham was getting older. And, and, and they knew God had made that promise, but they got to a point where they said, you know, God promised this, but God just really isn't coming around. God isn't fulfilling his part of the bargain, it doesn't seem like here. He promised us this, but I'm still barren and I'm in my old age. And Sarah said, why don't you go and have a child by Hagar? And then you'll have an heir. You'll have someone who can inherit. You'll have someone who can carry on the family name. You'll have someone who can fulfill the promise that God made to us that it looks like God is not going to fulfill. Well, how foolish. How many times do we find ourselves doing that, though? We see in God's Word where God says He's going to provide. We see in God's Word where God, God says He's going to take care of us and He's going to do certain things and, and we sit around and we try to figure out well God you're not doing it quick enough how can we do it ourselves and just as with Sarah and Hagar and Abraham when we do that we typically make a mess of things don't we we typically short circuit what God is wanting to do in our lives and that's exactly what's happening here but, verse 23 but, but the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman according to the promise or according to the spirit you know the, the truth is that you, you can work all day doing things for God I mean Abraham and Sarah and Hagar all really thought they were doing God a favor here we're doing this for God so God won't look bad so God's word will be fulfilled so that so that we can see the promise of God we're doing this to help God out and all day long we find ourselves sometimes in that same sort of legalistic bind I'm going to do something for God I want to help God's reputation out somewhere when we do that that's according to the flesh and that which is according to the flesh is never pleasing to God remember that, that which is done according to the flesh is really, uh, is really as though it were never done it, it's like the, in one place the scripture calls it wood, hay and stubble and it says in the final day when the final judgment comes he's going to take all that stuff that's done in the flesh and he's going to gather it all together and he's going to go there and test it and he's going to put it in the fire and it's all going to be consumed it won't even be there anymore It's as though it never happened. But that which is done by the Spirit and done in the Spirit and done according to the promise of God will be taken to the fire and it will be refined as fine gold. It will come out of the fire more pure than it was when it went in and it will have value and it will have purpose. And that's where it is with Isaac. That's where it is in this story about these two children. One was done by the flesh. One was done according to the promise. God always keeps his promises and God did keep his promise but Abraham and Sarah just were not patient enough. And so he says, I want you to understand this very clearly. He said, I want you to understand, allegorically speaking, to make it clear to you, I think is what he's saying, although it doesn't make it real clear to us sometimes. For these women are two covenants. Now, I don't know how clear that could be. Uh, Paul doesn't beat around the bush there. He says, these women are two distinct covenants. And one proceeded from Mount Sinai. That's the law. That's where the law was given. And this first covenant proceeds from Mount Sinai. It's the law. And it's bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. So Hagar is is allegorized with Mount Sinai with the law. And and basically Paul is saying everyone who is under the law and everyone who is pursuing the law and everyone who wants to be under the law must realize they will always be in bondage. They'll always be in slavery because the law enslaves. But he goes on. He says, now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. You know Jerusalem. It's the city that God chose uh, to make the capital of the of the promised land. Israel, when they went in to, to occupy the land, Jerusalem became the capital. It became the place of worship. It became the place where the temple was built. And, and Mount Sinai and Hagar correspond to the present Jerusalem. Now, in Paul's day, when he's talking about the present Jerusalem, he's talking about the place where sacrifices are given. He's talking about where the place, the place where the law is upheld and the law is, is, is the central matter. And he says, that's Mount Sinai, that's Hagar, and that is this Jerusalem. But he says there's another Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. And by free there, it's not talking about how much it cost. It's talking about free from the slavery and bondage of the law. Free from the slavery and the bondage that comes from legalism and trying to do for God and trying to make yourself... uh, 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 acceptable to God and and uh, and good enough for God, this this heavenly this heavenly Jerusalem, that's our mother, because Isaiah said in Isaiah fifty four rejoice barren woman who does not bear break forth and shout you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one, of the one who has a husband. In other words, Sarah, our mother, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above, is a is a mother of freedom she was the mother of Isaac she's the mother that brings freedom to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ he said you brethren like Isaac are children of the promise now when he says you brethren there he's not talking generally to the world he's not talking about just everybody is is this he's talking to his brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ he's saying you are the ones you brethren are like Isaac your children of the promise your children of this new covenant your children of the second covenant your children of promise but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so it is now also well what is he saying he said listen just as isaac was persecuted by the brother by the son of hagar just as the 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 son of the law persecuted the son of the promise the one according to the flesh persecuted he who is according to the spirit that's what's happening now in, in galatia that's what's happening now you have been brought into freedom you have been brought in, in into grace through the lord jesus christ you have a relationship and a right relationship with God adopted into his family whereby you are the children of God i mean he made and you're the children of abraham if you look back in in chapter 3 or verse 26 through 29 he said for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And now if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You know when Jesus faced the Pharisees? And he looked at them and he said, you are are an enslaved people? And they said, we've never been in slavery. Now the Romans were holding them captive completely. But they said, We've never been enslaved. We're children of Abraham. I said, No, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of your father, the devil. You're not children of Abraham. Well no, wait a minute. These were Jewish leaders. These were Pharisees. These were the the, the temple uh the, the, the temple worshipers and the, the temple leaders and Jesus looked at them and said you're not, you're not children of Abraham. You're you're children of Satan and you speak Lies, just like your father, who is the father of lies. And, and they were taken aback by that. And they said, well, who are you to tell us? We, we are Abraham's descendant. And Jesus said, listen, before Abraham was, I am. Saying, listen, I, I preexisted before Abraham. I lived before him. I know who the children of Abraham are. And you are not them. And basically, they were Paul. That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians. He's saying, those who are in Christ... They are Abraham's descendants. He's saying clearly that that to be a child of Abraham, to be a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham is not a matter primarily of physical descendancy. It's not a matter of just saying, oh, well, I was born to this father, who was born to this father, and it goes all the way back and there's this Jewish lineage. But he's saying those who are in Christ are spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. And those that are of the Spirit are more, I won't even say more, they're they're only. Those who are of the Spirit are the only true sons of Abraham. Those who are of the flesh, if they are not spiritual sons, are not sons at all, Paul says. Because they cannot be. They cannot be because it's in Christ that all the promises of, 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 of the kingdom are given you know, that's one of the great things we can understand. There are two things about this that we can see for ourselves. One, all the promises of God belong to us who are in Christ, both Old Testament and New Testament. All the promises of God belong to us because we are in Christ. And secondly, we are children of grace. We're children of grace, not children of the law, not children and those who are bound up by, by legalism and trying to do stuff to make God happy all the time so He won't kick us out. We know that we're His by grace, we're His by adoption, we're His by His work. And for that, we give Him praise, and we give Him glory, and we give Him thanksgiving. It goes on and it quotes Genesis 21. He says, But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman. That is Mount Sinai, that is Hagar, that is that which is born according to the flesh and doing things according to the flesh. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir, and the son uh, with the son of the free woman. Paul is saying as clearly as he can say it allegorically that we are the people of God. We are the descendants of Abraham. We are the heirs, joint heirs with Christ Jesus of all that is His, of all of His promises. Of all of his goodness and all of his glory. And then he just kind of sums it up in verse 31. He says, But then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but we are children of the free woman. You know, Paul is emphatic here that these people not go back to legalism, that they not go back to the law. The law can't help them. The law can't save them. Only Christ can. And you know, I, I look at that and I, I realize we're not tempted to go back to the legal systems of Judaism. We're not tempted to go back to, to you know, doing stuff uh, like sacrifices or, or or trying to make circumcision a, a point of relationship with God. But you know, we too are tempted many times to to give up the freedom that we have in Christ as children of the free woman as children of sarah as children of the heavenly jerusalem as children of the family of god who has set us free for freedom's sake he set us free so that we might be free in christ we sometimes find ourselves going back to that legalism almost as bad as the jews do oh we don't do them we don't do the uh the sacrifices but we set up our own little system of do's and don'ts. We set up our own little external measures as to what a good Christian is and what a bad a bad person is. And you got to be a good person to be a good Christian. You got you know, and we do all that. and And, and you can make up. I'm not going to give you a list because if I gave you a list, you'd say, "Oh, well, I don't I don't look at those." But you've got your own. Sometimes we have to be careful. That we're not judging one another on matters that have no biblical criteria. That we're not judging one another on cultural matters and and Kentucky standards rather than on biblical standards. We look to the Word. We seek to know His truth. And we seek to hold up one another in prayer. Because we're family. We're family in freedom. We're family in Christ Christ. And he has called us to this freedom. Well, he's going to close out this chapter and close out his discussion of the gospel and the law and being sons and daughters of Christ or sons and daughters of God through Christ. And now he's going to come in in chapters 5 and 6 as Paul so often does and he's going to give us some very practical insight. He's not going to say these are are things that you will do in order to be right with God. But he's going to say that when you are in Christ, these are things that will characterize your life. When you are in Christ, these are things that will demonstrate a changed life, a different life. And he's going to talk about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit, not just in the flesh, and pursue the things of God. Well... We will look at that and we will see that in days to come. But what don't you to remember? If you are in Christ, you're a child of Abraham. If you're in Christ, you're a part of the heavenly Jerusalem. If you're in Christ, you're a son or a daughter of God Himself. And all His promises, you are heirs of. You are you are own you're in the will. Okay? any better way to put you're in the will and the good thing is we get it without him dying because he'll never die but we get it because of his grace because of his glory let's pray Father we are grateful to you tonight that we can come together and worship and study And pray and seek your face. Father, help us to do that diligently and fully as we seek to know you better. Father, I thank you that by grace we are a part of this new covenant. That by grace we are a part of your family. And we're heirs with the Lord Jesus. Joint heirs with the Lord Jesus for all of your blessings. Thank you, Father, for that. Lord, now we pray for this week as we go into it that you'll give us opportunities to to share your gospel with people we work with or go to school with. Pray, Father, you'll give us the ability to stand firm for your truth in love, helping others to see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.